0: We're back with the Tech Policy Grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind. I'm back stateside and had the wonderful opportunity this week to chat with Professor Eric Goldman, who's a professor of law and co-director of the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University School of Law. He's one of the leading legal scholars on internet law issues, especially when it comes to social media and content moderation. With Meta's release of its Twitter-esque product Threads last week, we decide to deep dive into the current state of social media and the law. We get into what the Fediverse, AKA federated universe of social media could look like and the implications of decentralized social media on content moderation, free speech online, and what the user experience might shape up to be in an era of rapid change. All right. Thank you so much, Professor Eric Goldman, for joining us. So, I want to dive right into it. You're one of the leading authorities in the U.S. on the study of social media and the law, and I'm wondering how you initially got into this field.
1: I had an epiphany uh, back in 1991, which is when I got my first email account. And it was an opportunity for me to exchange electronic messages in an asynchronous fashion to people who I didn't have a phone number for or I didn't have a warm contact to introduce myself and just start the conversation with them. And it completely blew my mind. Uh, how that opened up doors for me to talk to people, to express myself in ways that had been suppressed by all the other communication options I had at the time. And so by uh, realizing the power of electronic communication, it got me thinking about what are the laws of that? What are the applications of that? And so I started working on uh, researching internet topics back in uh, 1992. Um, and, of course, since then, uh, the internet uh, experienced its first dot-com boom, and I my career grew alongside that.
0: And I think that point of the power of the internet as a communication tool is really, really salient to me when we're thinking about social media and what social media has grown into uh, beyond just, you know, sort of personalized communications like email. And so... I want to get into sort of the current state of social media, because this past year has been really kind of a big year for a lot of changes within different platforms and the emergence of new ones. And so for our listeners, unless you've been living under a rock or don't use social media or watch the news, uh, you're probably well aware of Tesla and SpaceX founder, Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter in October, 2022. And since then, he implemented a number of policies within Twitter that have been controversial. So could you take us through what some of those features have been and what sort of impact they've had on Twitter?
1: So let's start with the most obvious change that uh, Elon Musk has made to Twitter, which is to, I think, radically downsize the content moderation team and the other teams working on trust and safety, um, some of which has been picked up by uh, automated tools uh, that um, uh, you know can uh, backfill uh, some of the the intervention, and uh, others of which are just being ignored and have just been you know cut loose. Um, and so we're having an experiment and what happens when you have a large scale social media service try to do less content moderation, not just philosophically but operationally. Um, The other change that that I would highlight that Musk has made um, is that he's uh, changed the the substantive rules of content moderation on the service. Um, So in general, he has leapt back onto the service a number of people who had been um, deplatformed, and he's changed a bunch of the rules that were designed to improved the discourse um, by keeping people safer, by um, uh, looking for problem uh, uh, categories of content, and eliminated those rules or or, uh, uh, downplayed their enforcement. Um, so we have both the the operational change, less content moderation, and we have the substantive change, less rules or lighter rules about content moderation. And that creates a really interesting A-B experiment, not only against Twitter pre-Musk, but also against the rest of uh, social media.
0: Right. And I think this has been sort of a crucial point for not just trust and safety experts like yourself or those who might be listening to this podcast, but really society at large for thinking about how content moderation actually impacts uh, the user experience and how, you know, sort of dependent we've become in a sense on social media for our daily lives and how, if content moderation isn't functioning in ways that it's supposed to, uh, how that might influence our our experience online and our experience with each other in society at large. So I'm wondering, since Musk took over Twitter, a number of people decided to leave. Um, you know, different communities of politics, law, academia uh, sort of would state on mass. You know, this platform isn't safe. Um, It's not secure in the ways that we would anticipate. And so in that sort of mass leaving, people would say, hey, follow me on LinkedIn instead. Uh, But for a lot of folks, they are also migrating to different platforms, new platforms like Mastodon, Blue Sky, et cetera. And you're personally active on some of these. So What would you say is different about these new platforms from traditional platforms like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc.?
1: Uh, Just one thing to clarify, Uh, you said that people are leaving Twitter on Moss, and I think that it's more like a slow roll as opposed to a hard break. Um, So I'm still active on Twitter, but far less than I used to be. So uh, I check it once a day where I used to have it uh, uh, open all the time and engage with it hourly, if not more frequently um and as people de-emphasize twitter then that pushes their demand for engaging with each other to uh, these other services that have proliferated um so i use all of the services you mentioned uh you didn't mention two others that i'm also uh, uh have accounts on uh t2 and uh post.news um and uh some of the services are really designed to replicate the basic business model of Twitter which is to build a, a walled garden type um Uh, access to their content database. You have to go to their servers in order to engage with the content, um, and they control all of the user experience. So post.news, for example, would fit into that category. Um, But other services, and you mentioned Mastodon and Blue Sky are are two that uh, stand out, are really making the emphasis to try to create a decentralized model for um uh the services that there's a common user interface across the servers, but you can go to different servers and have different experiences and so we're seeing I think a a radical reshaping of the concept of social media from everything has to be provided by a single vendor to possibly many vendors can be in the same uh, uh network uh but have uh possibly different uh terms and experiences
0: and I want to break that down a little bit more of what that looks like on the user side. So if different vendors are able to access one sort of platform, uh, what does that experience translate into from the user side, or does that change the user experience?
1: When there's a one-size-fits-all solution like Twitter, if Twitter makes a deplatforming decision, it decides that somebody is no longer eligible to participate in the 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 service. That's it. It's like the uh, excommunication from the service entirely. They simply are no longer, uh, uh, you know, a, a functioning member of that community with a decentralized model, a de-platforming decision may not have the same stakes. It could mean that server A has decided that that person is no longer welcome in their community, but that servers B through Z would continue to welcome a participation uh, by that same person. Um, they can digitally migrate from service aid, uh, server A to servers B through Z um, and still remain part of the overall conversation. And so it reduces the stakes that are at issue with a, something like a de-platform decision. And we can go through the same exact analysis when it comes to a particular item of content. If a single server... Uh, modeled uh, removes the type of content. It's then available to anybody in the uh, service entirely. But if they, uh, but if there's a decentralized service, um, there could be parts of the network that display that content, other parts that don't. It's not a single size solution.
0: That's really interesting, and sounds like sort of a mitigator of a lot of the First Amendment issues that get brought up on sort of both sides of the political aisle uh, within sort of deplatforming on social media and censorship generally. So I'm wondering how would that interact with current existing protections for internet companies for interme- intermediary liability with think section 230, which we've talked about on this show before as the key one. Uh,
1: If you don't mind, I do want to correct one statement that you made. You mentioned that um, the, the Uh, decentralized uh, content moderation has First Amendment implications. I just want to be clear, of course, uh, private servers are not obligated to comply with the First Amendment. They're not bound by its provisions, but they certainly have free speech implications. And I, I think that's maybe where you're going. I just want to make sure that we are clear about the First Amendment actually not being relevant to discussion. This is really about database management, or database policies, and different uh, approaches to mm-hmm. it. Um, and, and so, uh, with respect to, uh, then, um, The liability consequences. Um, We start with a basic premise. Section 230 says that websites aren't liable for third party content. And that's true whether or not they operate a single server service where it's all in one, you have to go to that service and engage with it, or if they operate some kind of uh, server in a network um, where they're all communicating with each other following a common protocol. Um, But As long as it's third-party content, whether it's originating on their server or somebody else's server, so long as it's not the server operator's content, they still benefit from Section 230 protection. So... Section 230, I think, enables the kind of decentralized model uh, because of the fact that now every node in the network in these decentralized models don't have to vet each other to make sure that they're legally uh, up to snuff. Um, they can participate in the, this common protocol and not worry about whether or not the other servers are, are handling um, their legal responsibilities properly. So it actually, I think, is an enabling feature, of Section 230. You didn't mention Section 512, which is the notice and takedown provisions for copyright. Um, And I think that's a a more complicated issue because one of the questions I have is, what does a notice and takedown scheme look like when you have a decentralized model um, where each server is making its own independent decision about whether or not content stays on service or not? Does it proliferate the number of notices that a copyright owner we'll have to send, and, and some of that may depend on the technology, but I think that's one of the more complicated questions. It was easier in the model where the service and the server were uh, the same identity because then you send the notice to the server and, uh, slash service and you get the same result. When it, it when the notice and takedown scheme in a decentralized model, I don't know if you get the same result.
0: Got it. And as far as the efficacy of content moderation, decision-making on a decentralized platform when the decision-making is sort of more localized, so to speak, within a particular server administrator's uh, power. Do you think that that might help address some of the really complicated issues that we've seen in making actual content moderation decisions and some of the trade-offs involved there?
1: Well, because it reduces the the stakes of any content moderation decision that the different servers could have different experiences um, that might diffuse some of the pressure um, but on the other hand, I think there are two looming problems that we need to acknowledge the first is that some servers may go rogue and have content moderation policies that become ultimately problematic. Um, and then that's going to not only affect them as a participant in the network, but it might color the perception of the entire network. Um, and so we might see that you've got a rogue ne- uh, network node and other legitimate network nodes, and are they going to excommunicate the rogue network node and say you're no longer w- allowed to participate? We're no longer going to honor your messages because uh, uh, the protocol would allow, but we choose not to. Um, so we don't we haven't really seen, I think, what that looks like when we have the rogue network uh, node. Um, but the more important problem, I think, is that assuming that all the network node operators are um, uh, legitimate good faith actors, there's just gonna be a variation in skill and capacity to do content moderation. Some of the people who operate their servers are gonna be really good at it, and others are gonna be new, and others are just not gonna be competent at doing it. And And so we're going to see, I think, some issues are going to arise as people who are not really knowledgeable about what it means to do content moderation are thrust into that role. They don't actually want that role. They may not be very good at it. And then hijinks ensue.
0: And do you think in either of those two scenarios, it would be up to Mastodon or Blue Sky or the sort of platform provider itself to implement some sort of top-down policies that all the servers have to comply by?
1: You've raised an interesting question. Um, is there an entity called Mastodon or an entity called Blue Sky that has the authority to make content moderation decisions across the entire network with all these individual servers making their own policies? Is there still a boss above them who can intervene and um, uh, and make content moderation decisions? If the answer is no, from a technical standpoint, that ends the inquiry. There is no entity to do take that role. And a well-designed protocol, in fact, wouldn't want to have somebody at the, a boss above the servers um, because of the fact then that that boss is going to end up usurping the power that's designed to be delegated to the individual servers. Um, so if there is the technical capacity to intervene, then I guarantee the regulators will focus on that power and put the uh, the the you know the the big boss and uh, at the top of the pyramid um, in charge of doing more to intervene and we've seen this for example with domain names um, that domain names uh, uh, registrars really have a very light role in the overall ecosystem they make a match for a domain name and then they're supposed to get out of the way and over and over we see regulators say. But because you have the power to turn off a domain name, you now ha- should uh, be um, uh, intervening to fix XYZ problem. Um, and so we really don't want that. That's not the right solution. They aren't close enough to the action to be able to make the decision um, uh, properly. And yet the regulators are always interested in how they could shift the power in that direction. And to the extent that the protocols have some big boss top, the same thing will happen.
0: I want to get into Meta's threads, which has gotten a lot of buzz in the news lately, just because it's been adopted very quickly by a large number of people. I think there are over, uh, over 10 million people signed up as of now. And they launched last Wednesday on uh, July 5th. So I'm curious as to your take on Threads and sort of how it interacts with this larger trend of the emergence of decentralized models when Threads is a new product of Meta, which is one of the largest social media platforms that spans across both Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, and now Threads.
1: So uh, I will confess, I'm not a Threads user. I've never been an Instagram user either. Either Happy to talk about my choices with respect to that. Um, but in general, my understanding is that Threads has promised to actually create the same kind of decentralized protocol that we've been discussing to date. That, in fact, uh, that uh, f- the meta operation will operate one node in the protocol, um, but that they won't be the only one. Um, and so I'm very eager to see what that looks like. That offers a huge amount of potential to boost the overall ecosystem of these de- decentralized uh, federated servers um, if Meta can provide the kind of financial and logistical support that otherwise might be missing from some of the newer entrants who just don't have Meta scale. Um, if they don't do that, then Threads looks just like Twitter circa, uh, pre-Musk, or maybe even post-Musk. It's still, you have, you have a common identity between the service and the servers. Um, and as a result, um, uh, it's a one-size-fits-all type of solution. Um, that's where we stand today with Meta. Uh, I'm sorry, with Threads. That's where we stand today with Blue Sky. Um, honestly, though Blue Sky has vowed, uh, to change that. Um, and so I think we're waiting to see whether or not Threads is actually the harbinger of a new era in social media, that Meta is actually just going to become a single node in a broader decentralized network, um, which would be really interesting and exciting, or if Meta decides that it really does want to control the experience entirely and therefore collapses back on the single server model.
0: And I want to tie back to what you said in the beginning of our conversation about your sort of epiphany of what got you into the space in the first place and sort of the power of being able to communicate in these online communities, online platforms uh, with ease with one another. And I think from my view, what has made Twitter such a powerful space over time has been its ability to bring communities together and to engage in you know, threads of conversations and use it as a place to learn from uh, people within your particular discipline or fields of interest, not just in a professional context, but also a personal one. And so do you see decentralized models as sort of being able to replicate that well um, or even better than what Twitter has done so far and what threads might endeavor to do.
1: So I don't know how many of your listeners remember Usenet, um, but for me, we're having a, a resurgence of the Usenet model and I don't mean to put you on the spot. I don't know how familiar you are with Usenet. Um uh, guess is it predates you. Um and uh so let me just say a few words about Usenet. And I think that'll be a way of shining some light about um I think what we're gonna see. So Usenet was a very old old protocol. Um I don't even know if it goes back to the eighties. Um I started using it in the early nineties and it was pretty active by then. So um, you know, it's been around for it was around for You know 30 plus years um and uh you said model was what what they called store and forward so um a user would upload a message to server a and then server a would be in touch with server b and say hey i've got some new messages i'm forwarding on to you will you forward them on to the next place and server b would then forward on to the people it knew and so on and through that process then Um, messages would propagate from server A to server B to server X, um, uh, uh, all following the Usenet protocol. And Usenet divided up all of its topics into various taxonomies. um, And beyond that, some were moderated, some were not. um, But Usenet was a pretty wild and woolly place overall. It was a very early time, and uh, the content moderation tools weren't that well-developed, and it was just a different era. And so for me, uh, we're kind of seeing the resurgence of a Usenet-style model, that everyone's going to be talking in their own local servers, but then sharing it across the entire network. Um, And that same model has been around for decades. And so if if the user interface at the front end is consistent and people can predict how it's going to work, then they don't really care about the back end operations. They don't care if it's a storm forward model like Usenet was, or if it's these decentralized networks like um, Mastodon, um, or if it's a, a single server model like Twitter. Um, In the end, if if the user interface allows them to understand how to communicate with uh, others, the technology doesn't really matter. So um, I I like uh, uh, Mastodon uh, quite a bit. I feel more comfortable using Mastodon than I do Twitter. Um, And for me, it serves the same basic function as Twitter. I'm having the same kinds of conversations but with a different community because there's different population on Mastodon. I personally have been enjoying Blue Sky, the best of the various social media services I'm on, because it reminds me like Twitter was back in the old school. Now, Blue Sky has not yet proliferated its federated model, so we still haven't uh, seen what it's like when it extends to additional nodes in the network. Um, but for now, the Blue Sky interface very, very similar to Twitter. The kinds of conversations I can have on Blue Sky, very, very similar to Twitter. Um, and so the backend technology doesn't really matter. Um, so for me, I don't, I don't really think that I feel like Twitter solved a bunch of problems or you know offered a bunch of capabilities that we all really valued, um, and so for a while it was really the right place to be. But I don't think that was actually unique. And in some sense, now I think the federated models have exposed some of the limitations of Twitter. This one size fits all solution may not actually be the best. So long as we can still have the kinds of conversations we're having on Twitter.
0: I want to can kind of switch gears and get into the concept of interoperability, because I think that is one component of the user experience that strikes me as salient. But the relationship between interoperability and competition online, uh, especially with social media platforms, is really interesting. And so we've seen... Meta, I think is a good example, release products or features within its existing product suite that are similar to those of other social media platforms. One example of which being Instagram's Reels as a parallel to TikTok and now Threads as a sort of parallel to Twitter. So what is your take on interoperabilities and, you know, being able to go between products or having products be sort of dependent on each other. For instance, threads is sort of dependent on having an Instagram account and very tied in its identity to that. Uh, How do you think that that plays out as far as the user experience and competition?
1: Uh, So there are two different issues there. I want to break them up. The first is the fact that services often replicate each other's features from an intellectual property standpoint, I view that as generally a good thing um, that the market could, should be constantly iterating. And so long as there's not an exclusive intellectual property right restricting competition in that area, the, the replication of those features is a net positive for us. That we get the best uh, uh, breed as different experiments are being conducted and the successful ones then sweep across the industry. Um, so from my standpoint, that's generally a good thing um, uh, to see. Um the interoperability question, I think, is more interesting. And let's talk about an example of the primary uh, benefits of um, of the, 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 feder- the federated model. Um, the idea that different servers can have different content moderation policies, and if a user doesn't like a server's content moderation policies, it can migrate to a different server with a different content moderation policy. And the idea, therefore, is that If if servers in the network are engaging in irrational or unpopular approaches to content moderation, the market will speak, people will migrate somewhere else, and therefore um, uh, we actually have competition among servers within the network about who can offer the, the best experiences for users. Um, there are a number of problems with that model, um, and I have a lot of questions about that. The most important one is how easy will it be for users to migrate, and will they ever take advantage of that that feature um, and we don't have any data about that that I know of. Um, it remains to be seen. But I'm pretty skeptical, actually. It's, it's, it's a relatively complicated process to set up an account. Then the idea of migrating that account just sounds overwhelming to the average person. Um, so if that primary benefit of being able to migrate isn't likely to work in practice, then it means that server operators might engage in irrational behavior and still not suffer any marketplace consequences. So um, a lot really does depend on the the ease of migration from a user standpoint and if they'll actually do it, if we want to have that kind of benefits of competition within the interoperable network nodes.
0: So, This past year has been, as we said, sort of at the top, a big year for the development of social media. But in tandem, it's also been a big year for artificial intelligence and the proliferation of uh, general purpose artificial intelligence models to the general public through ChatGPT and other creative uh, services like that. And I'm wondering if... You think that there might be an interaction between that emerging technology and the emergence of the Fediverse and the potential spread of decentralized social media platforms and what effects might sort of come from that if you think that there will be an interaction there.
1: There's a lot of different potential interactions. But I'm just going to circle one for a moment. Um, we're at a moment in time when there's this broad-based tech lash um, that has been fueling regulatory efforts um, against technology across the board. And the emergence of generative AI during a tech lash uh, leads to the real potential for regulators to intervene in a way that will suppress the overall capacity of generative AI um, they'll just pass a law and say, you can't do that. It, the technology might let you, but we're not going to let you as a behavioral um, a model. The uh, regulatory blowback against generative AI it poses a significant risk for the rest of the internet. And in particular, the social media services use of things like algorithms in order to present and organize content. Essentially, by loose definitions of what constitutes AI Um, It's entirely possible, if not likely, that the things that social media services are doing in order to best serve their users will become regulated as a collateral damage of the anti-AI backlash. So, um, I'm very, very concerned that the discussions we're having about generative AI are going to leach back into social media in a way that will not benefit social media, will not be optimized for that, will not be in the best interest of users, and the regulators just don't care. Uh, but that's generally true of the tech clash um, across the board. Uh, the regulators are, um, are are really focused on anti tech outcomes, not pro consumer outcomes.
0: So, we've talked about a number of different issues and still have barely scratched the surface of all of the complexities of social media. But if you were to sum it up, what do you think the current state is of social media with all of the developments that have been happening.
1: It's, it's an exciting time for social media, seeing the proliferation of new services that have uh, different approaches. It really blows apart the arguments that were made just a couple of years ago that social media was at a standstill, uh, Facebook and Twitter had won, and everyone else had lost. And that argument just looks mockable um, in light of the developments in just the last couple of years. Um, so I'm very excited about that development, but I go back to my concerns about the regulatory blowback fueled by the tech lash. Social media be, may be in an innovative state, but overall, the era of user generated content is coming to an end. Regulators have decided that it's too dangerous to allow users to talk to each other without over-involvement of the intermediaries in a costly and legally risky way. And so I think that over time we're going to see... Uh, the social media services, whether they're the one server, one service model, or they're the uh, decentralized models, are going to start turning off their user-generated content features. They're going to say, the legal environment has gotten too risky for me. I don't feel confident that I can survive the legal risk and or the cost of compliance. Um, Let me go and do something else uh, with my time and money. Um, So, all this innovation we're seeing in social media comes in the backdrop of this huge tsunami of regulation that's about to crash on the industry and potentially wipe it out. So overall, I'm actually quite bearish about the future of user generated content, and that includes social media. And it makes me sad because I told you, 30-plus years ago, I fell in love with the internet because it allowed me to talk to people. Um, and that's exactly what the regulators don't want me to do anymore.
0: I want to end our conversation on a note for how listeners can actually get involved with these issues if they're interested. Uh, We've had Foundry Fellows before that you've worked with personally, like Jess Myers, and you've been such a mentor to so many people in the field. So I want to ask, what's your favorite piece of advice that you give to your students at Santa Clara?
1: My favorite piece of advice, and as you can tell, I, I bloviate with my students all the time. So you're you're making me like choose among my favorite children. Um but uh but my favorite piece of advice is to for students to trust their gut and their instinct when they feel like something's amiss. Um and what happens in law school is that We teach uh, students how to think like a lawyer um, and in the process of doing so to approach things from a textual standpoint and not necessarily an emotional standpoint. And what happens to my students is that they start to doubt themselves. They get this form of imposter syndrome where they think, if I see a big company that's engaged in practice, they know what they're doing, they have the smart, smarter lawyers than I uh, am, and therefore what they're doing must be right. And if I just copy what they're doing, I must be okay because I'm sure they've done their homework. And we've seen over and over again in this internet field, how major industry players have gotten caught making very basic mistakes that my students actually do know better um, but they can't trust their instincts they they, they get you know uh, uh, cowed by the uh, you know perception that somebody around them must be smarter so I really work to empower my students to to feel confident that when something doesn't sound right even if you can find other examples of people doing it who should know better um, to, to really go back to first principles this is why my my you know spidey sense is tingling um, and I don't care that other people might have made a different choice. Um, very, very hard to do. The imposter syndrome overwhelms that feeling but yet I give students in my internet law class example of an example where they should have done that and if they had they would have been a better lawyer than the people who we're studying.
0: That is a great piece of advice and a great place to leave it. So thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for a wonderful conversation.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us, or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Mohammed, our social coordinator, Allison McReynolds, our Accessibility Coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.